Welcome to the C21 Podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Today, in a bumper episode, the C21 team looks ahead to the hot topics that will shape MIPCOM 2023 in Cannes next week. Satisfaction Group founder and French TV star Arthur Essebag on winning this year's International Formats Business Gold Award. Showrunner Morgan O'Neill on NCIS Sydney and Pongo Productions' Bailey Mackey on how All Blacks fans are looking to crash the French Riviera parties. With US studios returning to licensing after a period of retaining rights for their own streaming services, and some streamers, notably Amazon, selling originals for the first time, this year's MIPCOM is shaping up to be a lively affair. While the US writers' strike has recently ended, the knock-on effect will be felt across an industry grappling with the potential impact of artificial intelligence, an economic squeeze, and the fact younger viewers are increasingly straying to other platforms. But amidst all this, the distribution landscape appears to be opening up again with greater flexibility in deal-making and independent players collaborating in new ways, while the sale of all three media could set off a new wave of consolidation. C21 Editorial Director Ed Waller, Channel 21 International Editor Nico Franks and North American Editor Jordan Pinto spoke to me about these topics and more as we look ahead to MIPCOM 2023. Thanks, everybody, for, for joining us. Really exciting MIPCOM 2023 is shaping up to be. It's the, it's the first one, really, since the US studios, I suppose, have pivoted back to third-party licensing. Um, we've got Bob Backish there being named the uh, the MIPCOM personality of the year for Paramount. They've been licensing perhaps for, for a little bit longer than some of the other US studios. But uh, Warner Brothers Discovery, Gerhard Zeiler, also making one of the keynotes and having just announced his international team team as well the new look for that obviously they're keen to get back into the licensing market as well disney too it'll be very interesting to see what's what's happening there as well as with all the rest and of course we've got amazon mgm global distribution the first time that one of the major streamers has openly come out and uh, said that they're going to be licensing their original product to the marketplace so it's, it's shaping up to be a really interesting one ed what are your opening thoughts yeah i agree john um i think it's you know it wasn't that long ago that we at C21 and, and other trade publications were writing about the, the death of distribution. You know, all the content was going behind the wall gardens that were being built by the streamers. The studios were keeping hold of their content. Uh, and, uh, you know, the whole sort of edifice of, of content licensing was uh, shaking a little bit. Uh, and we were going down to Cannes and and, and uh, there wasn't a lot of US product. It was giving opportunities to other distributors for sure. But now I think for the reasons that you've just outlined, there seems to be a lot of wind behind the sales of distribution once again, which is quite exciting since, you know, MIPCOM was a market that was built on content licensing. You know, it's it's tried to move into a little bit more of uh, co-development and co-production and things like that. But it's essentially a, a market where you go and buy shows. And so it, the, the, I guess looking at the, what's happened over the last couple of years, the uh, in the rush to original production, the content licensing was was downgraded to some degree by platforms and channels. Um, but now, given the economic situation and the you know soaring production costs and 
it's 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 back in fashion you know um some channel some big us networks like the cw uh, have pivoted to f- from original drama to basically shopping on the international market for for dramas that they can just pick up at places like mipcom um and take back uh, to the us you know this is all down to the pressure i guess that the wall street backers uh, are exerting on these these streamers and and studios uh, because of you know the emphasis is now seen to be on 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 return on investment rather than sort of grabbing market share uh and so you know the streamers seem to be happy to license out their shows uh, maybe on a non-exclusive basis perhaps to other streamers uh and uh you know it, it's it seems to be you know the energy is coming back in, into into uh, distribution it's one of the things that i think is going to be interesting is the kinds of deals that are going to be forged you know whether it's all non-exclusive you know, is it back catalogue? Is it you know new stuff that they're they're going to be licensing out to on a non-exclusive basis, uh, and also how how it sits with some of these networks that are that are going back to sort of licensing content rather than original. We've we've seen some platforms and streamers like Viaplay in Europe that have crumbled because they've overspent majestically on uh, on original content. So it seems that it seems that. Um, the, the market is, is correcting itself to some degree. Jordan, you're our North American editor. So uh, what's your perspective from, from over there? Yeah, well, obviously the big talk here for the past six months has been has been the strikes. And I, I think the impact of the strikes or the, the, the lack of product that will be a result of the strikes is quite an interesting um, piece of the puzzle for MIPCOM. Um, I think like I've spoken to people and there are two different theories, I guess, about how um, the lack of US product might impact the MIPCOM market. Um, on the one hand, I think s- s- some people have said they think there will definitely be a lack of US product um, in the market at MIPCOM. Um, I had, you know, I was speaking to a US agent about this uh, and actually one of the a distributor at one of the US um, studio kind of distribution arms. And they said they certainly thought that there would be a lack of US product. And, that, and that's not just from the, the, the strikes and the hole in production from the strikes, but also from the scripted slowdown that we've seen from the US players over the past 12 months. Um, and the, the the theory that they posited was that this would create more opportunities uh, and that the winners in this would be some of the UK, Canadian and Australian projects that are kind of of a really high standard and can cut through internationally. Um, now, and kind of to Ed's point, um, the other the other theory I've heard is that the return to third party licensing will kind of counterbalance any lack of scripted product that there might be because of the strikes and the US scripted slowdown. Um, and so I think, uh, well, it, it seems that the way that they've been holding back product from the, from, for their um, D to C services, that obviously is not is not something they're doing um, to the same degree. Um, exactly what that's going to look like um, at MIPCOM, it will be interesting. You know, companies like MGM or Amazon, MGM Studios, they started talking about this at the LA screenings in May. Um, Disney have been, you know, certainly making overtures about returning to third-party licensing. I think exactly what that strategy looks like has not become clear yet. Um, I think it'll certainly be interesting to see what Disney's presence is at MIPCOM this year. Um, I was chatting with with someone who said that they think that Disney might have a pretty large presence um, at this year's MIPCOM. Um, but at the same time, they are talking about the fact that the optics would be bad if they're, you know, if they're splashing a lot of cash at MIPCOM while at the same time, like, you know, in, implementing the, the kind of drastic layoffs uh, and cuts that they're instituting. The optics are bad of that too. But um, seeing certainly what Disney's um, presence will be like uh, at MIPCOM will, will be kind of something to watch out for, I think. 
In, in terms of the, the the strikes coming to an end, just ahead of the market, in in fact, I mean, the, how significant is that? Yes, yeah, certainly on the for writing talent. Um, obviously, the the WGA strike is over now. Um, the membership is is just ratifying um, the the new deal with the studios, um, but the, the strike itself has has ended, and writers are free to uh, you know promote their work and you know and continue working. Uh, the SAG strike is is ongoing at the moment, um, but I think I think it is it is an interesting point just because I think the fact that the strikes are ending it's a naturally kind of optimistic moment because I think had MIPCOM taken place against the backdrop of a continuing strike and to be honest if if the if the WGA strike hadn't been resolved by this point I think everyone at that point thought it would have run into January anyway which would have been a pretty depressing um, backdrop for MIP it would definitely have created more opportunities for some of the international sellers but. I think you know everyone knows that a, a a long six six plus month strike in the US would have been a disaster for everyone. So even in the UK, we're seeing some of the impact, and there were you know there have been rallies to uh, to try and um, you know push the companies to get to come back to the table and and get the the deal done as quickly as possible because everyone is suffering. Um, so I do think the fact that the strikes are almost over is is going to be a, a big kind of positive and a, a bit of wind at the back of the uh, of the overall industry. So it's obviously had a knock on effect around the world as well. Nico, you were just down at a, an event, a Beck Two event in London just recently as well, um, where the, that union was was raising the issues, I suppose, around the concerns that there have been for the production sector in the UK. I mean, Jordan mentions optimism there, and uh, there's a lot of it. Around around but at the same time tough economic environment as well how are you feeling about things and given all of the articles that you've been processing to go through into uh, the latest edition of channel 21 international magazine you know give us your take i guess on some of the big stories and and the trends yeah so the magazine will be uh fresh off the press available to read in can and yeah i do have to admit it did uh just putting it all to press recently and then kind of laying it all kind of soak in actually it caused me to wake up in the middle of the night worrying quite a lot about the future of the business especially after the back to uh, demonstration and just this feeling as ed mentioned of the pressure that is really pushing all sides of the business um you know making things feel quite uncomfortable from top to bottom really you know from the the upper echelons of the business uh, adjusting completely their strategies right down to the um the other end and you've got kind of costume designers and lots and lots of people thousands potentially reconsidering whether or not they want to work in the film and tv industries and i think people need to be mindful of that in can because it is quite easy to get um swept up in the in the sun and the the glitz and the glamour but really you know if people do not want to work in this industry in the next five years then there's not going to be anyone to make these shows um that everyone's doing deals for so i think uh that's that's something that that hopefully people will be talking about and yeah it does definitely feel like a a long time ago that the biggest talking point at mipcom was which celebrity diving format is the one that people want to buy um but yeah we've also got you know for a bit of light relief the tv's approach to the climate emergency 
you know, after a record-breaking summer in a lot of countries in terms of uh, temperatures, um, TV changing its tact to try and stimulate a sense of, you know, we can do this rather than scare tactics and and how that's going to change on and off-screen approaches to to kind of incorporating the climate emergency basically in in every program, um, which was what some buyers were were saying, um, and you can read about that in that feature. And yeah, I'm also a bit worried about uh, MIP Junior and and the kids industry. And, and what's going on there because in that area it feels like the biggest player now in kids is YouTube and that's a player that does not invest in kids content so the kids industry is is facing a reality where its biggest platform and its biggest figure and and brand has no interest in in kind of sustaining it and uh, investing in it and keeping it healthy uh, so yeah, I'm hoping maybe after a few days in can I'll, I'll come back a, a bit more optimistic, but, but maybe not. Ed, you're very optimistic, however. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not quite as, uh, as, uh, nihilistic as, uh, as Nico. Um, but yeah, I kind of think that the, the business works out ways of doing business, isn't it? I'm, I'm, I'm sort of a part of my optimism is perhaps the, you know, some of the deals that we saw over the summer that are. Uh, as creative as perhaps the shows that they're selling. I mean, I, I noticed the uh, the Disney deal with with Channel Four earlier this summer in July, where they they licensed a whole bunch of series, the X Files, Bones, Abbott Elementary, and so forth, uh, to Channel Four's uh, streaming service. And they they're not going to leave Disney Plus, but they're going to be on on Channel Four streaming service as well. So it marked a sort of a, a new phase of deal making where uh, exclusivity is perhaps not as paramount and um and studios and and platforms around the world are quite happy to share knowing that their audiences are sort of perhaps slightly different uh, or uh, uh, not migrating between the two or indeed are migrating between the two so it's it's a new sort of phase where content you know it wasn't that long ago that it had to be on an exclusive basis but now you know what with lockdown and now the situation that we're moving into now it seems that exclusivity seems to be taking a bit of a backseat and and platforms are quite happy to share um one of the other things that i've noticed over the last uh well i suppose it's it's um underscored by the the strikes we've seen this summer is uh, but continuing what's been going on for the last five or six years is is the fact that the U- the supply of U.S. product to the market is is not as uh, wide as it used to be. It's it's giving much more opportunity to other other countries. You know, uh, whether whether it was because of um, lockdowns or whether it's because of st- strategies uh, D to C strategies by the studios or or uh, or what or whatever. It seems that there's a lot more content from other parts of the world giving a chance, been given a chance to shine. You know, we we've C twenty one's just come back from rendezvous in France, and you know the big story that came out of that was that um, the, the sale of French programming is is skyrocketing, and and the US is now the biggest buyer of French drama around the world. You know, this is this is quite a a new phenomenon, and you know the data that was revealed by Unifrance and CNC was quite convincing you know that you know that the, the, the sale of french drama is is at an all-time high and america's buying a lot of it i think that's quite an interesting new dimension to the business you know america and hollywood in particular used to be the supplier of content to the world and now it's shipping in shows uh, and uh, you know i referenced the cw earlier they they they've changed their strategy completely where they're buying shows from around the world 
uh, you know, Hollywood's position is is buying in as much as it's selling. So if we're not talking about the death of distribution, are we talking about the the rebirth of distribution? And, uh, you know, if so, it's very interesting, obviously, that uh, one of the biggest players in the, the content space in distribution and in, in production, all three media jointly owned currently by Liberty Global and Warner Brothers Discovery is on the market. And um, Liberty Global's boss, Mike Fries, said just recently that, you know, the sale of that business he, he felt could be a, a major catalyst for further consolidation. So really interesting, I guess it's happening at a time when in some ways the industry is contracting. But as we're saying, again, the value of product and international product and interest in, in licensing is is growing. So does anybody want to weigh in on, on that one and, you know, know what we might see happen all right i can i can jump in um well uh, yeah i, I think it's, it's it's certainly interesting what's happening with with all three at the moment um i think it, to me it feels like there's certainly some kind of you know negotiating in public going on uh, itv were, were you know in the frame initially as the company that were like the likely acquirer and then you know itv publicly you know pulled pulled back and said you know they weren't actively exploring it and then there was that um i, I wasn't at rts but there was the mike fries and the the itv executive that was in the in the crowd there was some kind of you know he was basically saying you are interested and they i think itv are kind of shrugging their shoulders and saying well it sounds like they're kind of negotiating publicly over the over the the price the price tag is basically um what's going to happen here um, I think at the moment, a lot of businesses feel that they are undervalued um, given the state of the market. I think um, like I was listening to a Thunderbird Entertainment conference call yesterday, and they they are kind of looking at, you know, potentially selling the business at the moment. But they see now as a really bad time. I think a lot of businesses aren't valued as at what they will be in maybe even six months time, but certainly in 12 months or 18 months, they feel that the business is going to kind of uh, is going to going to build back. And so I, I I don't know I I don't I think there are certainly probably a lot of companies circling all three at the moment and I'd say they're looking to get a a, you know, a good a good price but I don't know whether maybe within all three if they think that holding it holding on to the business for another six or twelve months might make more sense and the you know that they might get a better valuation a little bit further down the road. We have seen a kind of ripple effect taking place with with smaller distributors as well. Jordan, I mean, you you wrote a piece about the developments that we've seen with Media Ranch and GRB. Blue Ant International, Marble Media. You know there are there are players out there on a, a slightly smaller scale, perhaps who are who are kind of you know again thinking about new ways of of doing business, either coming together completely or, or merging. In the case of Media Ranch and GRB, just the uh, the distribution arm of their businesses. Yes, um, especially for some of the smaller companies i think you know combining even if you're not combining the full businesses so grb and media ranch they've kept their um, production and kind of creative sides of their businesses separate but it, it's just the distribution pieces that they're putting together and that you know the the reason for that is fairly clearly you know they need scale against some of some of the other players because we've seen in the market as the, the ones you rattled off there john um you know the even some of the the mid and the big the big players are getting even bigger um like e1 and lionsgate it'll be interesting to see um what kind of presence they have at Mipcom actually, um, and then companies like Amg uh, Amazon and MGM, um, D360 and Blue Ant. Yeah, all, all these companies are, are getting bigger. Um, one interesting thing that um, Gary Benz from GRB Studios um, said to me when I was chat chatting to him was, um, they want they want to scale up because the the buyers uh, they, because the buyers are scaling down at the moment. They often find that they are the, the the teams of buyers that they would normally interact with have been scaled down so much that it can sometimes just be like one or two people. 
And so they want to have a, as, a broad, as, as broad an offer, offering as possible so that they can basically be, you know, like a mini one-stop shop for some of these uh, some of these buyers and some of these, you know, international network buyers who right now are really hurting. And they, you know, even like from a kind of bandwidth point of view, if your team is shrunk, you want to be able to kind of quickly have someone offer you, you know, as many things as possible in one place. I think it's also interesting that one of the things that might be driving these mergers of distribution is that uh, in order to launch your own fast channel, you need a lot of volume. And maybe that's part of it, because if you've just got a few hours here and there, that limits what you can do in a D2C space. Whereas if you've got a, if you've teamed up with some other distribution arm and you've got a bit more volume, you need, you need volume to make fast work, really. And, and it gives you more options if you're a distributor, if you've got the volume. Um, to do that, to move into that space. And I think as we go forward, I think a lot more distribution companies are going to be moving into that space. And that might be driving or what, at least one of the factors why uh, driving the, the the alliances that we're seeing. Okay, a final thought from each of you, a prediction, if you would, what will we be talking about at the end of next week? Well, uh, I think one of the big subjects that we haven't really discussed, but we will be in can is artificial intelligence. And it might not be us discussing it. It will be our avatars that are patrolling a virtual uh, quasette. Yeah, I was I was actually going to say that one of the things I don't think that is being talked about right now, and maybe will be in can, is AI and how AI might change the distribution business. I um, I to personally I I'm not smart enough in AI to to begin to comprehend how how it might, but I feel like it's a fair game discussion. Obviously, the journalists we're all getting replaced eventually, so uh, I think we can talk about the distributors too. But it might be interesting. I don't know. I'm sure there are processes that AI will be able to automate at some point, but the the, the impact on the distribution business quite be, could be an interesting long term uh, thing to look at. Nico, a final thought from you, or have we already replaced you with AI? No, not quite yet. But I think it's been interesting seeing some of the announcements ahead of MIPCOM about distributors picking up a lot of um, content that was originally for you know, social media channels. I think Film Rise in the US was one of those, and I think obviously people. Will be talking about fast and it's you know it isn't a big revenue generator yet and people are still somewhat skeptical about it as a revenue generator but i'm wondering if it could kind of act as the potentially hopefully for tv as a way to kind of regain some of its relevancy by acting as the kind of de facto platform um for social media content which obviously is what people love watching and on public transport you'll often see people just almost you know very such incredibly short clips just mindlessly scrolling maybe fast could be uh, tv's way of kind of getting back into that kind of bringing it back within the kind of tv ecosystem because at the moment it feels like a lot of the way people entertain themselves isn't tv uh, and some of it is you know tv content that's been repackaged on on social media but there's definitely a huge gap where a lot of the entertainment people are getting is just user-generated and um, it's not necessarily uh, the most high quality. And um, I think uh, Fast could potentially bridge that gap for TV and um, bring social media content back into the TV ecosystem. Well, we'll all be very much in the TV ecosystem next week in Cannes. So um, thank you very much for all of your thoughts and really fascinating stuff there and plenty more to be discussing throughout the week. Thanks to my guests. Ed, Jordan, and Nico. Thanks Thank very you. much. Cheers. Thanks. Cheers.
Arthur Espar is one of France's best-known TV hosts and a leader in the development of the French unscripted sector, establishing Endemol France together with Stefan Corby in the 1990s and Satisfaction Group on his own in 2010. Satisfaction now produces more than a thousand hours of TV every year, including homegrown shows such as Divided and Liar Liar, alongside local versions of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and Dragon's Den, following its acquisition of the French operations of Sony Pictures Television in 2020. Now, Esseberg has been honoured with the 2023 International Formats Business Gold Award, given annually by C21, Frapper, EMC and Mipcom Can to executives who've made an outstanding contribution to the formats business. He spoke to Nico Franks about what the award means and how he sees the current TV landscape. What does it mean to you uh, to get this recognition from the industry? Thank you very much, first of all. And uh, first, I was surprised when I heard the news. And I was very proud, not only uh, for Satisfaction Group or, or myself, but also for the French uh, industry, because it's, I think it's the first time ever that there is a French uh, who get uh, this honor and this prize, this award. I think is the for us is the a way to to celebrate uh, many years of uh, work hard work in this industry, many years of uh, creativity of uh, uh, as a host also, uh, many years of developing uh, formats, IPs, many years of uh, relationship in between uh, broadcasters worldwide because you know that satisfaction we are working with, with all the broadcasters in the world and it's for us, it's a way to encourage uh, us because it's a momentum for satisfaction. We are starting to grow worldwide. We are proud and I'm sharing this award with all my teams because I'm not the only one who do all the job and uh, I'm happy. Uh, who, who won't be happy with that kind of price? So I'm happy and oh, I think the, the most important for me is when we are the first French to, to get this award because uh, since years uh, we understood that slowly but surely the French IPs are starting to grow worldwide and uh, it's a recognition of our work. And you're one of a rare group of people who is well known both uh, for your work on screen um, as a presenter and a performer, as well as off screen as an exec, um, holding various roles at companies like Endemol and of course now Satisfaction. Which side of the business do you enjoy the most? Oh, at the beginning of my career, I was uh, uh, more excited by being on air. But after 30 years, I have to agree that I'm more uh, concerned and excited by uh, producing uh, uh, other people and uh, other stuff, not linked to me as a host. It's about 15 years now that I'm uh, I'm cons- concentrated more of more of my effort in. Uh, developing also other talent. Today, we've got the best host talents of friends linked to satisfaction. It's interesting because sometimes it's very hard as a, as a host to uh, work with other hosts, you know, because there are always ego, you know, uh, in between, but uh, not in my case. I'm super proud when as a, another host is doing very well. So this is also why part of the development of satisfaction has always been to be linked to hosts and the talents. Now, I really enjoy uh, developing uh, the company. We are producing 1,200 hours per year of content, and I'm hosting uh, maybe 3% of those uh, 1,200 hours. So uh, it's not satisfaction. It's not an uh, Arthur-dependent group as a host, but uh, this is what I'm the most proud is that uh, I'm, uh, let's say, uh, 
I can make this company live without me on air. So this is that was my first goal. And now my second goal is to do exactly the same in Spain, in Italy, in UK and everywhere in the world. Uh, I still like hosting. And what I'm sure is because I'm not hosting a lot of shows that I appreciate them each time. I used to host 100 shows per year. Uh, I used to be uh, hosting daily shows. Now I've got a weekly show. Uh, and uh, 10 or 15 prime time per year and this is and how does your experience on either side inform the development that you do at satisfaction i think being a host helps a lot uh, when you develop uh, a new format because you can say to the team no this is going to be too long this part is too slow we need more reason there. Uh, when you build the mechanism of a, a, a new format, having a host in-house is very helpful. And also being producer is very helpful as a host because, for example, in terms of economic, economic point of view, I agree easily to host few shows per day uh, than a host who is not involved in the production. When you're just a host and not involved in the production, you can say, oh, I want to host just one show per day. When you are a host and a producer, you know that it's better to do three, four, five shows per day. So it's complementary, but as a host, uh, even when we are working with the set designer, with the light designer, being uh, since 30 years on stage helps a lot when you are developing an IPs. But first, you need the, the ideas. But after that, when you're developing the show, the mechanism, the, the pacing, as a host, it helps a lot. And it's interesting you've partnered with, uh, among the companies you've partnered with, is Richard Bacon's Yes Yes Media, who has a similar background in the sense that he's well known in the UK as a presenter. And now he's getting more and more involved in formats and selling formats. So in your conversations with him, is that something you've discussed? I think uh, if we fit together, it's also because we both of us have been hosts. So it goes faster uh, during the meetings. Uh, but all the partnership we are doing are a creative partnership. Richard is super creative. His brain is always working 24-7. You can receive text message in the middle of the night. But this is very, very interesting. This is why we are not only partners. We, we invest on this company uh, with uh, Elizabeth Mordock. We are shareholders of uh, Sister Media. And this is why we are doing that kind of JVs. We are only working with talented people. We did a JV with uh, John Demol. We, we we got a JV with uh, Fullwell, you know, uh, Leo Perlman and Ben Winston. So those are very those are creative people, very uh, interesting people, very modern people, and they've got plenty, plenty, plenty of ideas. And satisfaction is starting to become the hub of all the talented people in Europe. So we are very, very happy. Yeah, it seems like it's becoming a bit of a kind of go-to for non-French producers and creatives who aren't affiliated with some of those really big groups who want to get their shows on air in France. Which is complicated is that in French, we don't have a lot of players. We've got Vanille and Media One and Satisfaction, which are we are the three more most important uh, players. We are uh, the, the only one independent, focused on unscripted. So if you are a, a major in US, in UK, wherever in the world, and you want to start producing in French, you've got two possibilities. Or you open a, an office and a department in Paris, or you find a partner who got everything. And what we got, we got a contract with all the broadcasters. We've got hosting. So we've got the slot, we've got the host. So if you got the good ideas, it goes straight ahead. The last example was uh, uh, Warner. Warner had a, a show named uh, The Wheel. 
and to enter the French market. Even they've got an office in France. They came to us to do the show with uh, uh, with TF1. So most of the international players, when they are coming to TF1 and say, okay, we've got a new format, let's say uh, that's my job, the show of uh, Jimmy Fallon, to enter the French market, they came to uh, our group and uh, Camille Combal, the host we, we bring to the group a few years ago, host the show. So it's, uh, you cannot go to Benidjay because Benidjay is the number one, the big elephant. Uh, Media One is more uh, uh, scripted content than unscripted. And in unscripted, they are more focused on magazine. And if you take Shiny Floor, Satisfaction, our game show, comedy game and Shiny Floor, we are the, the number one in France. So we are welcoming all the partnerships. We will announce during Midcom new partnerships and also new uh, new company we are opening. Satisfaction have a real production value. Everybody like our production value and top of that now we are starting to produce for american uh, broadcaster in france because as you know it's starting to be very expensive to shoot in america so for example we did a, a reality tv show for uh, fox uh, last summer and we shoot in france we produce in france they, they just sent us the talents and we did everything which was successful also and we are starting to bring that kind of relationship uh, in europe so, so this is very important. For the first time, uh, foreign uh, broadcaster asked us to produce even in Europe. Like you know, they are shooting, for example, Wheel of Fortune in Manchester. They are uh, shooting in Dublin because uh, the the price are not anymore affordable in the in the US market. Was that a love trip, Paris? Love trip, Paris. Exactly. Yeah. In France, the entertainment shows are very. They go on for hours and hours. So, how do you go about adapting formats? This is the key. The key thing is that how you adapt uh, 26, 42 or 52 minutes shows in a time show. This is the main exercise. So we know the French uh, market. And since many years, we are producing long prime time, sometimes uh, three hours. So the first thing when we're taking a format, let's say when we took the wheel, the wheel is a 40 minute show, we did a two hour show. So we, we propose to the IP's owner to make some small modifications, some fine tunes of the format to create a drama till from the beginning till the end. But even the show, uh, two hours in France, we have only three advertising slots. So also it changed the mechanic because normally if you take UK format or even American format, they are created also uh, using the duration in between uh, uh, advertising. So if you take whatever show, one slot is calibrated to go till the, so it's normally it's five, seven or nine minutes or sometimes 11 minutes. For us, the first advertising is coming after 40 minutes. And after that, you've got 25 minutes. And after that, you've got uh, 50 minutes, something like that. So we know how to make it happen. Uh, we've got also our secret recipe. This is why to enter the French market also, it's uh, you need a French, uh, let's say, a, a French company to make it happen. But at the opposite, and which is the, I think, the particularity of uh, satisfaction, is also that we know how to make a two hours format in a 52 minute show. Why? Because all the IP we are developing, we are developing it first for the foreign market before the French market. All, all paper format, all our trailer seasons are made in English, not in French. So we are not French only. 
So if you can make it in 52, you can make it in two hours. And if you can make it in two hours, it's easier to make it in 52 minutes. How does that work then with streamers when a streamer is coming to you? Do they prefer the very, very long format? No, no for example, we are developing uh, two formats, one for uh, Netflix and one for Prime. And we are working on uh, 26 or 40 minutes maximum format. It's a different way to tell the story. But remember, on streamers, there is no advertising. So... Uh, in French, you've got, uh, as I've told you, 40 minutes. And after that, you've got eight minutes of advertising, which is super long. Okay. During this eight minute, you need to find a way to keep the people. And not only with uh, coming next, uh, you know, saying in the five no, you need to find more, more drama. So it's interesting because you, the story needs whatever the show to bring something, uh, till the end. Because remember, we're starting at 9.15 PM and the shows end at close to 11.45 PM. So it's complicated today nowadays to keep all as much as possible people in front of the tv for close to three hours you know because in three hours our child goes to netflix and and watch six episodes of a series also or youtube so we were talking earlier about those big french media groups banerjee media one and then there's a few newer ones like a sasha uh, federation and a lot of them are, are focusing on scripted how are you looking to kind of compete with those groups and also move into different genres as well as formats so we bought a company uh, named aleph the three company aleph aleph one and aleph two we are producing a lot of scripted uh, we just finished to shoot one for tf1 we're starting next week a six episode series for tf1 also we produce series for france 2 we did documentary, uh, high quality documentary for uh, Canal Plus. We did also, uh, I don't know if you heard about the Carlos Guns documentary. So we are developing, this is not norm, our main uh, core business, but I'm willing to uh, invest more on the scripted content. But I think because it's a long process to produce scripted from scratch, we think that we will go uh, for a, a build up and acquisition of uh, of uh, scripted uh, companies, not only French-wise, but uh, European one. But top of that, we are more focused on talented people. That means good showrunner, good writers, good production company, instead of the one who have catalogs who cost a lot of money. But I bet on the unscripted. I bet on it three, days, uh, three years ago. And I think I'm close to win my bet because uh, today, if you take just a picture of the market, all the, let's say, international uh, uh, major are keeping their own scripted shows for their platform. So there is a, a lack of scripted in the French market. You know, a few years ago, we had a three week, three days per week on each channel with American series. Those shows doesn't work anymore. Okay. And the new ones, when you go to the screenings, you're not very happy because uh, most of them has, are retained. There is a momentum for the unscripted for two reasons, lack of uh, American series and top of that unscripted is less expensive faster to to produce and if you take just the french territory for the scripted you've got two advertising slots per show for unscripted you've got three so if it's less expensive and you can make more money with the, the unscripted as the broadcaster and last but not least the unscripted catalog get you see the value of the unscripted catalog uh, changed a lot since COVID, you know, during COVID, because the, the broadcaster didn't order fresh show in the French and European market, they did plenty of rerun. And we discovered that the rerun for an unscripted show made as much ratings that uh, the fresh one. And this is a real 
game changer because our catalog get valued more and more and more days after days. And for the second reason, which for us is the main reason, is that the digital exploitation of the unscripted is uh, creating much more revenues than the scripted. For example, you can cut a movie in 12 parts. You can cut a documentary and edit it in 12 parts. You can take one of our comedy game show, you put it in 12 segments and you send them digital or on platform and you can make a lot of money and a lot of, uh, uh, let's say, ancillary from the show, you know, Fast TV are more linked to uh, uh, unscripted. So now we understood, and at my humble point of view, uh, that unscripting uh, is entering in a new era. Am I right in thinking TF1 launched a new slot for unscripted as well? So are the, are the French broadcasters doing Yes. More? Uh, TF1, France Television, and M6 are launching new slot for unscripted. Yeah, uh, TF1 launched the Tuesday night. Normally, Tuesday was more focused on unscripted on scripted series. M6 also no, there is no more series on M6 close to zero. Maybe the Saturday night they're launching sometime a new series, but most of them are doing uh, unscripted, factual, whatever, but not. Uh, and also the scripted cost very, is very expensive, the scripted. So uh, you need to create big events to, to have a big success. And unscripted, you can see it. If you got, uh, I don't know, 10 episodes of Mass Singer, you know that you're quiet for 10 weeks as a broadcaster. And you know that you can also sell those 10 weeks. You know, this is very important. You mentioned distributing clips from your library on social platforms and fast. Where are you seeing the most... Where are you seeing the most success and with what kinds of shows are you seeing it with? So uh, for the moment, uh, we are not distributing uh, directly. We're using a different company in French. Uh, most of our catalog is uh, distributed by a company named Reworld, Reworld Media. And there are three big ones. There's Webedia, Reworld Media, and Jellysmack. Uh, we did a one-year test. Most of the shows who are performing are the comedy game shows and uh, the, let's say, the um, shiny floor shows. Humor is more uh, is doing better results than, for example, uh, songs. So funny situations, funny game shows, bloopers, all those thing coming from our uh, shows are doing very well and they are performing from uh, TikTok to Facebook to uh, Snapchat to all the, you know, the platform. So today, nowadays, we are doing close to 10% of the revenues of the group are coming from uh, from this exploitation of our catalog. YouTubers are doing millions of views on YouTube and each time we try to bring a YouTuber on a linear channel, it doesn't work. Why? I think it's because those guys are super talented in 5, 10 or 20 minutes. They're working a lot. Everything is scripted. They're doing very qual- good quality content, but it's an event. They're not doing a one-a-day uh, format like every day. So Every month, every two weeks, are doing one, five, ten minutes shows. So it's exactly the same with uh, when you say TikTok. We can make a prime time show for ten minutes or twenty minutes or forty-two minutes American production, but coming from thirty seconds, it's very complicated. And I think there is not a lot of bridge in that direction from TikTok to TV. I think there is better direction from TV to TikTok. I don't know if I'm clear. But it's complicated. We saw so many viral things uh, on TikTok and we said, oh, this is a good idea. This is a good idea. But to replicate it on a real prime time show, on a real access program, is we didn't find uh, the trick. Uh, we are working on it. We've got a, you know, got a digital department and we are challenging them. But what we are doing is that we are doing a lot of companion show on digital. 
helping with taking a show and we are doing everything linked to the show, but not on air. For example, we've got a comedy game show named Anything Goes. And now we create a laboratory which YouTubers are going to test the next game that's going to be on air. And this is going to be pure digital. We would like to do as much as possible on the digital media. But the problem is that the costs are not the same. Uh, you've got a uh, hundred times less money to do something on digital than on TV. Only big YouTubers can make it happen because we've got such big communities so they can afford, but they can afford a daily show. So for me, the most interesting is not YouTube because YouTube are very formatted uh, short segment. I think it's Twitch. Twitch for me is the future. For the next generation, uh, let's say that Twitch is the TV and uh, YouTube is the replay. It's a pay-per-view, the VOD, let's say. Because you get that direct link to your the audience. Exactly. And also, there, we've got one example in French. We had a, get, uh, a YouTuber named Squeezie who did uh, a big show last week on uh, Twitch. Uh, he did a kind of Formula One uh, replica with only YouTubers driving and streamers. He made live one 1.4 million viewers, which is huge. So it's a big uh, event. Uh, even my son was uh, spent the entire day watching it, but they are doing just one per year. If you have to do one a week or one a day, this isn't something uh, more complicated. This is why I strongly believe that there is a lot of time and a lot of room for a TV producer. And do you think if you were starting now, that Twitch would be where you would be starting rather than radio? Yes, yes. If I had, uh, when I, I started 30 years ago, he had the opportunity. You can imagine what we done to arrive to my first radio station. All the work, all the, the casting, everything I have to do. Now it's easy. You take your smartphone. If you're funny, it's go, it goes viral. This is why it's much more complicated for our generation today as a producer to find new talented hosts because nobody wants to be host anymore. There is a lack of host worldwide. It's not normal that as my age, I'm still on air. It's not normal that the youngest host of TF1 is 42 years old or 43, I don't know. It's, it's, is there something not logical, but it's easy. Why do you want those kids to go on air on TV? They can make much more viewers with their smartphone in their bedroom. They've got only advantage. If it works, it makes money. If it doesn't work, they try something else. In TV, if it doesn't work, everybody insults you on Twitter. You've got the press, you know, it's very, very, uh, this is, we're trying to find, to, to develop a kind of laboratory to talented people to make them going on air. They don't want anymore. This is the main goal is to bring them back on TV as a host. What we see in French is that as much as young, they are keeping YouTube and Twitch, but when they're coming to 35 years old, they're trying to move to the TV industry because, you know, the, the digital industry is consuming a lot of talented people and 30 years, 35 years are too old for the young generation. But they are very creative and this is very interesting. We are discussing with few YouTubers who create some tiny formats to find a way to bring them on air, not for the French market because they're using it, but for internationally. How can we distribute those formats? I think we're working on it. But Twitch, it's amazing. You're in your bedroom, you've got your own TV channel. It's fascinating and also because it becomes viral very fast. If you're good, you don't have to wait years to become a let's say, famous or to, to be uh, uh, branded by uh, sponsors. 
So this is what I like. It's like the, let's say, the Romanian arena. You enter on Twitch and there will be one winner. And I love that. And it, I think Twitch today is like the the radio station, you know, the pirate radio station we used to have when we were young. I mean, people feeling that they are a real freedom on Twitch. They, can, they, they feel that they can say anything, whatever they want, whenever they want, however, however they want. And is, there is no advertising as much as TV. So there is, is new, is like a new freedom space for the young generation, like radio was uh, 30 years ago. And also, when you're watching TV, you don't interact with the host. When you're watching Twitch, you can send a message. You, you feel to be part of a community. The, the goal is to find a way to bring this generation on Twitch or YouTube to try to find, to bring them back or on linear channel or on digital channel linked to the linear channel. The real difference between TV and all those uh, platforms is that TV is the only one media that when you are watching it, when you're in front of, uh, let's say for the moment, we've got the Rugby World Cup in France. You don't feel alone when you're watching uh, the, uh, the French uh, football or rugby team. You know that your neighbor, you know that everybody is watching. There is, you feel that you're part of a community. When you are watching uh, uh, YouTube, you are watching YouTube like you're, you used to hear uh, radio. Is you're alone. Uh, Sometimes I see my my son watching uh, clips on YouTube with a friend, and most of the time he's alone. You know what I mean? So we said, okay, he can watch whatever he wants, whenever he wants. But at the end, it doesn't have the same feeling that when there's a big event, you're watching the news, you feel that everybody's all together. This is why big events on TV, big uh, prime times, uh, eventual uh, prime time, big uh, sport events are becoming bigger and bigger. Everybody say nobody's watching TV. Last week, French rugby teams, we made 16 million viewers for the first match, which is huge. So when there is something make you feel that you cannot miss it, you know, when you create a kind of emergency to watch something, people are watching TV. NCIS Sydney is the first extension of the hit US naval crime drama franchise to launch outside America, debuting on Paramount Plus and CBS next month and wrapped around the world by Paramount Global Content Distribution. Showrunner Morgan O'Neill spoke with Michael Picard about adapting the show's format for Australian audiences and developing some of the action set pieces that feature, as well as the logistics of making them happen. My name is Morgan O'Neill. I'm the showrunner of NCIS Sydney. Uh, I'm a I'm a, a writer, director, filmmaker who uh, has lived uh, in the US for, for um, quite a few years, and I've moved back uh, with my family a couple of years back during COVID, and um, back to my hometown of Sydney, which which was very fortuitous when NCIS Sydney uh, put its hand up because uh, I feel like uh, it's uh, there's there's no better. There's no better place to come home to than a, than a town that you're telling a story about. So uh, it all smacked of great serendipity. Introduce us to NCIS Sydney then. Uh, perhaps people are familiar with NCIS and, and its numerous spin-offs in the US, but um, maybe just give us an intro to the, the Sydney edition. For sure. Well, as, as your your audience would most likely know, NCIS uh, is a, a franchise of uh, four, now five shows um, set around the world of NCIS. And there have been four that uh, exist in the US, the original. Uh, Hawaii, New Orleans, and Los Angeles. 
Uh, and NCI Sydney is the first uh, outside of the US. Uh, it's the first step into the uh, international sphere. And um, and it's set in Sydney. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Sydney is uh, one of the biggest cities in the uh, Indo-Pacific. And the Indo-Pacific is one of the hotspots geopolitically in the world right now. And it makes sense that, that we find ourselves telling uh, a new iteration of the story down here in Sydney, given the fact that it's the world's biggest island, surrounded by the world's most contested patch of ocean. And... Uh, the way the world is working at the moment, it just seems like uh, it's it's a very fertile ground to, to mine. And as you say, it's uh, the, the show's been a huge success in the US for at least 20 years. I think the, the main show's been going. Um, I mean, just tell us a bit about those first discussions you had about bringing the franchise to Sydney. Were Was that, um, I guess, an easy discussion or, or have you been working on it for many years? How, how has it been getting it over the line? Look, it was it was from my perspective, relatively easy, uh, which is which sounds strange. Um, It's obviously an Australian show. And from that perspective, uh, I just approached it like I would any other Australian show. It obviously has enormous international pedigree. But, you know, here's a show that's that's produced in Australia, made by Australians with a domestic uh, network partner, uh, produced by Endemol Shine Australia with Australian producers. So it just felt to me like I was telling an Australian story. It just so happened to have uh, this enormous and fertile connective tissue back to back to the mothership. But what I thought was interesting when, uh, when the project first came across my desk, I thought of a few things the first of which was why are the other iterations of the show so successful and as you pointed out collectively i think they've made 950 some episodes of this tv show it's one of the longest running in history it's a enormous franchise and 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 an ongoing one and i, I kind of started to think about what the key ingredient is for those shows and what's made them popular and how we can parlay that into a foray into that world in sydney and the word i kept coming back to was authenticity and i really do think that the folks who made those four iterations of the show before ours had a really strong grasp of the necessity to tell stories that were authentic to the place that they were telling them. And I think that, you know, smarter minds than me probably saw the real benefit to telling a story which has connective tissue one to the other, but never telling the same story. So if you watch those shows, the original, which is still ongoing, is very, very different to Los Angeles in terms of its tone, uh, its swagger, uh, its tempo, its color palette, uh, its 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 sonic palette, and then very different again to New Orleans, and which is in itself different to Hawaii. And I think that really informed a whole bunch of the decisions that I made uh, in trying to create this world, because I felt like no one was it was interested in in reclaiming that territory or retelling those stories. They really wanted to see what a what an authentic take on a different part of the world from a different cultural lens was going to look like. And so I pitched that back. To to CBS and they said swing for the fences and I, I took that that as a, as a kind of mantra and we really did we we really wanted to make sure that this show feels distinctively Australian uh, distinctive from all the other iterations of the show that we're looking at it through a, a cultural lens that is going to be authentic for an Australian audience uh, and is going to be intriguing as a result for an international audience um, and I you know we've all watched Scandi Noir for instance over the last eight or ten years just go bananas and the reason for that is not because you know any of us have ever been to Norway it's the fact that those stories are so authentically told from that part of the world and I think audiences just respond to authenticity in whatever form it is so we've been really mindful in crafting the show to make sure that it feels like an Australian TV show that just happens to have connected tissue back to the States yeah I mean yeah that's that's a really interesting point you make that it is an Australian show because automatically you might think you know the American team are, are just coming to Sydney and and redoing what they do in Sydney. But I mean, have you had a lot of conversations
conversations with the original team with the original you know cbs studios team about what the show should look like or feel like or or you know to make sure that connective tissue is there or have you you know like you say been able to go largely on your own look they've been very supportive of the direction that we've taken it in the reality is we're an entirely different race of people down here we all speak a common language but culturally we're very very different um we sit in the middle of the pacific ocean between that and the indian ocean we're a long way from los angeles we're a long way from washington and so when i pitched what i thought was the most interesting version of this show and also the version that makes realistic sense because you know the very first question anyone's going to ask is how does ncis operate in australia it's an american naval investigative service uh, and the reality is spoiler alert uh, ncis actually exists in australia and they have offices here and um we've, we've worked closely alongside them to make sure that the version of uh, the ncis office that, that is opened in sydney is really authentic authentic to what that actually would be. And what's interesting is that in order for, for NCIS to have any kind of jurisdictionality in this country, they have to partner with an Australian law enforcement force. And in the case of how that works in, in the real world, that's the Australian Federal Police, which is our equivalent of the FBI. So the show itself is the coming together of those two bodies of, of NCIS and the AFP. And it sort of tracks both their cultural clashes, but also their cultural alignments. And what's interesting, what's been really fascinating actually in the first season is how quickly those cultural barriers kind of fall away because what the show is at heart and again I, I ran this past the folks at CBS and they kind of nodded vociferously is that it's a police procedural with kink is how it's described it's got a wink to it it's got a twinkle in its eye uh, it's not it's not sort of it's not a heavy-handed police procedural where you get into the sort of dark innards of the human psyche it touches on that but really it's a show that's profoundly entertaining and uh, it's kind of I, I keep telling the writers we're eyebrows up not eyebrows down and from that perspective it seemed a really natural fit for Australia because that's how we are as a people what's interesting too is is that the show itself and the the organization that it portrays is often seen as a bit of an underdog it's the 17th of 17 US uh, military and, and governmental acronyms in the US you know starting with the NSA ending with NCIS it's the smallest of the 17 and it's constantly seen as the underdog it's constantly having to sort of fight its way through the bureaucracy and funding and and optics and all those things and in a funny way that sounds like Australia we're a, a very big country geographically but we're a very small country in terms of population and we kind of thrive in the idea that we we have to kind of scrap our way out of things and you know whether it be in sport or research and development or cultural exports it's what we kind of do as Australians and it feels like a very good natural fit that uh, NCI should arrive here definitely and and the the actual office is in Perth is that is that correct so I guess but was the show always going to be set in Sydney just for that familiarity yeah. and and you know. yeah interestingly the, the the main office is actually in Sydney of, of the the real NCIS um there is an office in Perth and I think there's a, an agent who's also stationed up in Darwin and they cover a huge amount of territory but um yeah their, their main operational force is based in Sydney and, and there's a reason for that which is that part of the remit of NCIS is to do what they call force protection detail which is to be the advance party for arriving ships and sailors and planes and and all, all those military assets that come and go from our shores increasingly frequently. And so uh, Fleet Base East, which is basically the head of our Navy, is right in the middle of Sydney. It's right on Sydney Harbour at a place called HMAS Cuttable. So it, for good reason, NCIS is based in Sydney because that's where the bulk of their work comes through. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I was really happy when I discovered all those things and that we didn't have to bullshit straight out of the gate, that we could actually <laughs> base this on, on, a, on a real situation, a real scenario that's happening as we speak and and so you've sort of introduced how the team 
in the show works together. Can you maybe just give us a flavour of some of the stories that you're going to be featuring in the first eight episode season? For sure. I mean, you're, you're British. You're part of our um, the the collection of, of Western countries, I suppose, who sort of fall loosely under the banner of AUKUS, which is us, the UK and the US, who have a, a you know, military agreement, which has been recently signed. And it's obviously, it's in response to, you know, a heating up of the Indo-Pacific. And there's a whole bunch of geopolitical forces at play in there, which are obviously front page of the newspaper type things, but also provide really good fodder for story. Open the newspaper any day of the week and there's a story that could easily be an NCIS uh, episode that's on the front page. So we, we actually open with an episode that starts with the arrival of, uh, of a nuclear submarine in Sydney, which is, for Australians anyway, the most prominent part of the AUKUS agreement. And um, as you can imagine, it's a, you know, it's a huge deal. We don't have nuclear submarines. I know you in, in, in the UK do, but, but we don't. And so the arrival of this nuclear-powered submarine in the, in the biggest harbour in the world is a big deal. And it causes all sorts of uh, interesting chicanery that happens. I won't spoil it beyond that, but suffice to say that the the existence of a, a nuclear submarine that may or may not be fully intact in Sydney Harbour is is the basis for the first episode, and we leap off from there. But there's there's you know there's at any point in Australia there could be eight to ten thousand U.S. Marines stationed uh, in and around the country. We're constantly doing military exercises with um, both our partners in the region, but also with the U.S. There's a whole there's a very strong push for interoperability between our navies and their navies. And so in that sense, if I were sitting back, uh, you know, trying to work out where the next franchise of NCIS was going to be, I'd have thought that Sydney was a fairly good bet because there's, you know, it's, as I said, it's the, it's the world's biggest harbour set into the world's biggest island, set in the most contested patch of ocean on the planet right now. Uh, so for a show that focuses on naval crimes, it's a pretty good place to, to set it. I guess it's unfair to call NCIS Sydney kind of an adaptation in its in its classic form of, of what you might expect if you were making an Australian version of any other US show, I suppose. But when you sort of took on the project, was there uh, an NCIS Bible? Was there a kind of DNA breakdown of, of what an NCIS show should look like and, and perhaps those format points that could steer you? And, and have you adopted those? What are they? Or have you kind of thrown that out the window and, and this is going to be quite a fresh take on an NCIS show for, for audiences who are familiar with the original series? Look, uh, I, I think the best way to describe it, rather than adaptation, is an expansion of the universe. Um, I really do think that's that's what we're trying to achieve here. In terms of the format itself, when I started to work on the show, I basically cleared my calendar for about three months and watched what seemed like <laughs> thousands of NCIS episodes. I feel like I've Honestly, I've, I deserve some kind of honorary NCIS PhD. I've watched that many episodes in such a short period of time. I was already a fan of the show, but uh, I didn't realise quite how deep the bench was. And in watching that many episodes, it became very, very clear that the show was successful because it hews pretty closely to its format. And the format is, you know, it's a four-act structure with a cold open teaser every single time. Usually within the first two minutes, there's a body drop. And by the end of the episode, it's usually solved. So that, you know, the idea of it being a self-contained episode is one of the one of the really strong points of the format, I think, because, you know, these days the, people have an immense amount of content to choose from. And I don't know if you're like me, but, but sometimes it can be overwhelming and I actually feel like sometimes there's real comfort in turning on an episode of TV and not having to know the backstory not having to track that emotional through line as closely as you might in in a lot of the shows a lot of the great shows that are coming out and I think there's something really comforting in being able to switch off briefly and just be told a story that's self-contained and I think that's obviously part of the immense success of a show like NCIS because you can lose track of the seasons you can come back at season 17 not having seen season 16 and you're okay you feel like you're in safe hands because 
because you know that these characters are going to be clever. They're going to be uh, a little bit kind of uh, scrappy. They're going to be uh, very, very good at what they do, but not take themselves too seriously. All those things are part of the format, I think, subtly sort of baked into the DNA of the show. And so we tried to follow that part of it as closely as possible. But at the same time, you know, I, I, back to my original point about not making the same show twice, I feel like we had a mandate to make a show that also felt very distinctively Australian and not necessarily hewing entirely, you know, 100% to, to the, the format. Um, there is a Bible that exists for NCIS and it's actually a, it's, a, it's an absolute ripper. But it also, what was interesting reading the Bible is it feels like the show. It's written with a kind of wry, unassuming, self-deprecating sense of humour, which not all TV Bibles are, if you've ever read them before. They can sometimes make incredibly dry, boring reading. But this one here was like reading an episode of the show. You know, it, the idea that you, you come for the crime and stay for the characters is really fundamental to this franchise. And we've definitely tried to lean into that. Uh, one of the other things that, that most of the franchises try and do very strongly is they build this sense of family around the people who work, you know, the, the, the five or six people who are the, the key characters in the show. And they don't really go home with them very much in the same sense as something like NYPD Blue did, you know, years ago. They, they basically decided that people who work long hours doing arduous jobs actually find family in the people they work with. And so we've hewn very closely to that. We kind of leave the private lives alone and let the audience wonder what those private lives are. And then we sort of throw all our attention in trying to make sure these people are interesting and connected, you know, in a funny sense, what the advantage that we, that we have with NCIS Sydney that none of the other franchises have had is that we get to tell the origin story of how The Office began. And we also get to tell the story of two very, very different groups of people culturally coming together. So I kind of pitched a version of the first NCIS blended family because that's what, that's what these characters end up being uh, by hook or by crook. You spend so long in the office working with these people that eventually they take on a sense of genuine family. Uh, and in our case, it's a blended family and and everything that comes with that, good and bad. I would say that the first season probably works really hard to try and establish those bonds of trust that are so essential to a family. And any subsequent season might be, you know, it might veer towards potentially uh, testing those bonds a little, fracturing the bonds, trying to put them back together. But um, we do definitely have an advantage that the other shows didn't because the other shows, they would drop the audience into an existing office and, and we get to build it from scratch. So all of that fun stuff, all that team building, all that sort of working out who's who in the zoo uh, is real, it's, it's story fodder for us and it's been fun. And and on that story, I mean, you've, you've watched countless episodes so I imagine there's a high probability of, of copying or, or going over familiar ground that viewers maybe recognise from the American series, but the fact that it's in Sydney, does that give you kind of a, a you know open field for brand new storytelling and, and there's much less risk of, of going over something that yeah might be familiar yeah i think so i think um i mean there, there, there'll be there'll be elements that obviously cross over all the time murders happen drug deals happen international espionage happens uh, none of those things are new what i think is new is that we're seeing it through a completely different geographical and cultural lens and you know there are there are interesting things too i mean that that sounds kind of a bit a bit highfalutin but the, the truth of the matter is for instance we have a very different relationship with guns in this country you know america has a has a has 
has a very unique relationship with firearms and we have a very different one to that as you do in the UK. And so that alone will will inflect our stories quite significantly in a way that's different. You know, I, I have a lot of, of cops in my family and uh, none of them have ever drawn their weapon. And I think that's a fantastic thing, but it certainly, it, it informs how we tell these cop stories because our cops don't necessarily draw down uh, their guns that often. And, and I think that's, you know, if you, if you imagine how that extrapolates across a series that's set uh, amongst, you know, a group of law enforcement professionals, um, you can see that there are just straight off the bat huge points of difference that are going to be very interesting for, for, for both our local audience, but also for an international audience to get their teeth into. And then, and then in your role as, as showrunner, you talked about working with a team of writers. Um, what, what's kind of that dynamic in, in the writer's room, I guess? Is it as we would know a US writer's room or is there a, a peculiar, unique quirk perhaps to an Australian writer's room that sort of means it functions in a different way perhaps? Look, we swear a lot. <laughs> um, I don't know if you know many Australians, but, but we, t- we, we tend to swear a fair bit. I, I think in truth, it's probably a little more informal than a typical writer's room. But in, in broad terms, it's exactly what you'd expect. There's myself, we have, uh, we have two script producers, we call them, which are basically sort of the two ICs. Uh, we have a, a bunch of, of, of writers and then we have um, some writer's assistants who kind of help out making sure everything is resourced properly. So it, it looks and smells and sounds like a, like a typical writer's room. It just maybe swears a bit more. But uh, we're, we're, we're really fortunate in this country to have, uh, I think, really overachieving film and TV practitioners. And you can, you can see that in how many Australians get represented in, in international TV over and over again, both in front of and behind the camera. And so we, we managed to assemble a really, really strong and quite diverse group of writers who brought, you know, a really, I think, interestingly pluralistic vision of Australia to to our stories. You know, Australia is, compared to a lot of other countries around the world, relatively young in terms of its Western history. We were able to bring in that sort of, I think, slightly fresh perspective to it, while at the same time, we were able to bring First Nations voices into the room. Uh, it was a very diverse room. And I think by virtue of that, it had a real sense of freshness to it. And um you know, we don't make a lot of police procedurals in this country. And I think from, from that perspective, we were able to find a whole bunch of people who were really excited to get their teeth stuck into something that is as as strong a format as this often. Definitely. And then, you know, once you're heading into production or, or perhaps even when you're in the writer's room and you're thinking about the kinds of stories, is your mind already racing ahead to, OK, how are we actually going to film this and and what kind of uh, locations or, or stunts? And, and I guess there's lots of water action, perhaps, in a, for a, a naval series such as this. What were some of those things that were top of your mind as the showrunner and, and actually getting the show made? Well, look, it's, it's interesting. We um we were very, very fortunate to have uh, an incredibly strong relationship throughout the, the show with the Australian Navy. And we, we forged that relationship very early on. And once we sort of, once we managed to give them a sense of confidence that we knew what we were doing, uh, they were just immensely collegiate in what they brought to the table. Uh, and one of the examples, for instance, is, is in the first episode. And I'd written that, um, and I don't know why I wrote this, but I wrote that there was a, a chase across Sydney Harbour with a US Navy Seahawk flying at 50 feet above the water, chasing a, a speedboat laden with explosives. And uh, I wrote it and no one questioned it. No one asked how we were going to do it. And I kept waiting for that tap on the shoulder to say, what the hell are you 
you're doing? And no one ever did. And it, we got to the point where the Navy said, um, so what do you need from us? And I said, well, uh, we, we, need a, we need a fully crewed Navy Seahawk to fly 50 feet above Sydney Harbour and chase down a boat laden with explosives. And they said, okay, good. Well, we can do that. And I said, okay, all right, good. And I woke up the morning that we were shooting it. And my wife crawled out of bed at 4.30 to make a cup of tea and send me on my way. And she said, you're looking a little stressed this morning. I said, well, I am a little stressed, to be honest. And she said, why? I said, well, we're, we've got to get 150 people on, the, on board a, a, an Australian Navy vessel docked at Garden Island at HMAS Cuttable in the centre of town. And we then got to fly a Navy Seahawk up from three hours down the coast, land on the aircraft carrier, and then coordinate a chase that goes across Sydney Harbour that we've had to organise with the people who run the harbour, the people who run the skies above the harbour, the water police. And uh, we've got to do it in a day and it ha- the weather has to be right. Uh, and we have camera barges all out in the harbour. And it's very stressful. And she said, well, you came up with it. Whose fault is that? <laughs> And she's right. And there are a whole bunch of moments throughout the shooting of, of the show where I was questioning whether my kind of swinging for the fences ambition was actually the right thing to do. But looking back on it, it was exactly the right thing to do. I think you're going to see a show whose visual and, and narrative ambition is really big. And there were moments where I did question it. Having seen the footage, uh, we did exactly the right thing. And, and we were very fortunate to have partners in people like the Navy who facilitated us to really uh, achieve things that you couldn't otherwise do. As I was saying to one of the actors the other day who was talking about it and I said look you know things like uh, getting a, a military grade helicopter for a day to play with on Sydney Harbour you can't hire them like you, there's no amount of money in the world buys that you either have friends who, who want to help you or you don't do it and so we were just immensely privileged to be working with the Navy and to have their confidence that, that they would lend us some of their really serious proper assets uh, and I think what you see is a production value that's really it, it completely outstrips its budget yeah no it's incredible when you, you get that authenticity and, and often people don't believe you. You think, well, what, what's going on here? There's, it's movie magic. But in this case, it's it's absolutely real. It's incredible. And I guess I'll, I'll let you go. But I mean, just, you know, NCIS has been on air for 20 years. I mean, what are you already planning season two, you know, after the show airs in Australia and in the US on CBS later this year? What's what's next? Look, you know, we'll know more once um, once the show goes to air in Australia first on November 10 uh, on, on Paramount Plus, and then, as you say, in the US uh, on CBS on the 13th. Uh, we'll know more, I would say, pretty soon after that to, to test the temperature of the response from the audience. But um, but so far, the, the the responses that we've been getting, it was tested a few times, uh, have been very, very positive. So, you know, I, I never like to get ahead of myself because uh, you end up eating humble pie all too often. But I would say that uh, all signs are looking pretty good. And and you know, as as I said, it's a it's it's a franchise that has spanned twenty some years. Uh, we are the fifth of five franchises. Once they get rolling, they rumble, and hopefully, uh, we're going to be we're going to be part of that ride for a little while yet. Bailey Mackey is founder and chief executive of Pongo Productions, a Maori-based New Zealand indie, and also he's co-deputy chair of the country's national rugby governing body. Roles that unite his passion for the sport, an Auckland-based production company's string of rugby-themed programmes in recent years. As ever, there'll be a flock of dedicated Kiwi producers making the trip halfway around the world to do business at MIPCOM in Cannes next week, and there may even be a few more than usual this year, with the 2023 Rugby World Cup being held in France and the All Blacks being among the favourites to lift the trophy on October the 28th. Mackie spoke with Nico Franks about Pongo's latest projects, the company's partnership with Fremantle and hopes of others, and why he sees the popularity of Access All Areas sports documentaries continuing to grow in the years ahead. Kia ora, my name is Bailey Mackie. I'm the CEO of Pongo 
Productions, which is an Auckland-based production company, which uh, next year turns 10. Um, so it's my second uh, production company that I founded. So a bit of a significant milestone next year. And uh, you'll be heading to Mipcom and you got to France early. So why is that? Um, look, like most uh, Kiwi producers, um, we have an eye on the Rugby World Cup. <laughs> um, I'm also the Deputy Chair of New Zealand Rugby. So I've... Um, I obviously have a pretty strong connection and interest in the game and a lot of our slate is uh, rugby related. We just finished a pretty cool series with Taika Waititi, uh, which is available on NZR Plus, which is New Zealand rugby's OTT streaming platform. And I guess, you know, there's probably a story in that as well that a lot of Panda member unions are looking uh, at going direct to consumer. So perhaps that's something we could unpack a little on this as well. Definitely, yeah. Access documentaries and, and things like that are a really big trend at the moment, aren't they? Let's start with your view from Altuera, New Zealand, and and how you kind of stay on buyers' uh, radars. COVID was an incredibly tough time for a small market like New Zealand and its connection to the international uh, market. And when you think about it largely for us, there's probably three key international markets, uh, the US, uh, Australia, uh, and the and the UK kind of Europe and for us you know everybody missed that face to face kind of interaction uh, that would take place at, at particularly at markets and I think if you think about last year's MIPCOM everybody was just so happy and joyous to see each other and and you know off the back of that was able to kind of reacquaint you know relationships and kind of refamiliarize ourselves with key contacts. I mean, the other issue, I think, post-COVID, and I, I still think there is a little sort of p- still effects of a post-COVID funk that some people had just been moved on and, and they, they weren't in the same roles they were in. And and I guess um, if you look at a lot of the media businesses globally, they there's a lot of consolidation that's gone on. You know, tell me globally, a content platform globally that isn't under pressure at the moment you know there's a uh, there's a cost of living crisis in a lot of OEC ECD countries there's um, a real squeeze we know AdRev the AdRev model is on a, a steeper decline than any of us would have ever imagined and and if you think about um, even sort of uh, a VOD model in regards to like the incremental uh, long slow burn of that has, has been found challenging in many markets so so all that context told, what's the view from the bottom of the world is that it's tough. And if anything, it just re-highlights the importance of a of face-to-face time at a market like um, MIPCOM. And, you know, we're really fortunate that, uh, you know, there's a concentrated period of buyers. And, you know, it's it's still hard to get legitimate, genuine face time. You know, you're dealing in half-hour slots. You're running from the Palais, one side of the Palais to the other, um, you, you, you know, and it just becomes a, a, um, a, a bit, it, it can be challenging, but on the same time, when you, when you pull something off, it's incredibly rewarding. And so, yeah, what's kind of been the, the highlight of your, of your year so far in terms of what you've, what you've pulled off? Getting to work with uh, Taika Waititi. We did a, uh, a travel log series of him cruising around France and, uh, indulging in a couple of his key passions, uh, which is rugby and food. And that was Tour de Rugby, and that's uh, available on NZR Plus, which is 
the um, New Zealand rugby or the All Blacks uh, direct to consumer OTT platform. And so, yeah, is that an area that you're looking to go into further with those kinds of buyers? So building those relationships, clearly, yeah, you've got some strong ones in, in rugby to get access uh, and those kind of fly on the wall documentaries that the audiences seem to, to really be enjoying at the moment. Yeah, I, I think if you think about it, like globally, uh, sports teams and their brands are often much more valuable than kind of the commercial revenue that they generate, whether it's a EPL club or, or in our case, um, you know, the All Blacks. It's how do you successfully uh, commercialise that IP? So, you know, that's something that we've undertaken at, at New Zealand Rugby. I'm the deputy chair um, of New Zealand Rugby. So obviously have those uh, that kind of connection, uh, not only my production side, but also just a deep love and passion for the game. When you talk about the commercialization of that intellectual property, um, to your point, access documentaries, that kind of view that the audience takes, I think, is really unique. And if you have a look at Netflix, everyone will cite sort of Drive to Survive as a real sort of game changer in the access uh, documentary space, um, which was the Formula One series. And it's, um, I think it's been, um, you know, it's kind of one of the seminal works that uh, I think we all look up to. And, you know, I, I was never into Formula One, but um, through the Drive to Survive series, I've become, I'd say an avid fan, not a deep connected fan, but enough to kind of buy the merchandise or if I'm near where an F1 race would be, I'd, I'd, I'd go and purchase tickets to to go and view it. So I, I guess that's the aim of them, right, is to how do you get that deeper connection and create fandom? And, you know, one of them is to open up the sport um, and the access to the sport. And obviously it's, it's access, but it's access kind of on the sports team or the brand's terms usually with these modern ones now. Do you find there's often a bit of editorial interference? Well, I mean, they're always challenging, right? Because the largely the sports body's key drivers are high performance, on-field performance. And so anything that impacts that can, you know, in their view might have a negative impact on, on things. So I actually think that's more of an issue than anything else is kind of, how you just marry and balance up those high performance outcomes, you know, how do you win matches or win races, as well as kind of open up the sport uh, through characterization of of the key athletes. Um, and it, and but if you think about it though, sport is probably the most pure form of drama there is, and you know it's intrinsic and it's set up. You you watch a game, and instantly you have a protagonist that you are supporting and an antagonist. Um, usually the antagonist for most um, Commonwealth countries is England, <laughs> whether it's in rugby, cricket, um, or whatever. And then you have an outcome. You know, that's a classic. Um, if you think about from a story narrative perspective, that's just classic storytelling. You have a goodie, a baddie, and you have a winner at the end. And and hopefully the protagonist overcomes the odds and, and beats the bad guy. Um or not. And, you know, I think probably sport and live sport is, is the is, is the last bastion of, uh, I think, of, of live entertainment. You forged partnerships with companies like Fremantle. Yeah. 
over the next three years is the aim to forge kind of more of those with more of those large production and distribution giants or is it to kind of go the other way and get your shows remade in in other territories yeah i i think it is probably the former first and then the second second if you like if you think about the sequencing of those two things so you know for a small market like new zealand and for a producer like myself scale is important and the easiest way to scale up is to go into a relationship with bigger players with bigger distribution companies with bigger other bigger podcasts because it effectively gives you a much more meaningful position in bigger markets and and that's just the way it is and kind of one of the things you learn quite quickly in New Zealand is you know, you might be a big dog in your own market, but actually once you get to a market particularly like the US, you really do need that collaborative approach. And you kind of, when you first get there, you try and hold on to everything and then you soon realise that, you know, more doors close than they do open. So collaboration's um, super crucial and and is, is probably, for me, is is one of the biggest sort of exercises that I go through when I get them up. It is about like finding out what other prodcos are doing, where we can work together. And that's also incoming too into New Zealand. We've got a pretty significant and, and important um, tax rebate system, um, the Screen Production uh, Incentive Grant. And we use that, I think, dutifully to entice investment into our market. We're doing a, a big series at the moment, um, which is with a Fremantle company um, in New Zealand uh, because of kind of some of the natural advantages we have uh, in terms of scenery, outdoors, and things like that. So that kind of production services work, I think, is is critical also in a market like New Zealand, and that kind of balances out against kind of some of the other things that we are involved with around our own, the exploitation of our own intellectual property. What's the latest kind of in New Zealand, and how is the consolidation that we've seen globally impacting the market? <clears throat> Um, well, I think for most New Zealand producers, we've obviously seen a real, real tightening of budgets uh, locally. So the, the need to actually get out of our country is even more important today than it was previously. Because if you're not kind of active globally or in other markets, um, New Zealand's an incredibly small market. Um, we know the impact that the decline in ad revenue has had on kind of overall, you know, on on networks' ability um, overall to kind of invest more into local content. So, um, you know, the view is made is you've got to get out of NZ um, and it's tough because quite often, and you can go through markets like Mipcom and because of the kind of back-to-back nature of meetings and, and things like that, it it becomes as much a relationship building exercise where the ROI on say MIPCOM 2022 really is only coming to fruition for, for me as a producer now because of some of the things that you had to put in place and then you kind of you end up pitching with other people and things like that. So quite often I think that it, it's not so much time with the buyers that is the useful part of MIPCOM. For me, it's actually time with other prodcos from other countries, distributors, 
And because the reality is, is if you're a significant buyer, you're getting 300 pitches at MIPCOM. And, and I'm not so foolish to think that when you're a producer from a small market like New Zealand, they will buy from you if you spend more time developing that relationship than they will just in receiving a half-hour pitch uh, with everybody else. So, and, and that can be quite hard, I think, for some producers because I think they just kind of see MIPCOM as this kind of um, oasis where they're going to arrive and networks have a ton of cash and, and they're just going to buy, buy, buy. But no, it, for me, uh, it's it's never kind of been like that. It's always been about um, just investing in those key relationships. And, you know, I remember going to MIPCOM and you would have 60 meetings or something. But actually, I've changed my approach to sort of have a quality 20 to 25. And then I'll kind of leave a bit of space for, you know, half a dozen others that might come up along, you know, a, a, when you meet people. And, and you know, <clears throat> there's that old adage of, look, a lot of the real business is sort of done from kind of 9 p.m. till when, whenever the, the grand closes or, or whenever C21 shuts Nico down on the beach. You, what would you say? What would be some of the key do's and don'ts? Because you hear different approaches, you know, some people's would say the other the you know the alternative you know the opposite and say you know actually get your head down you know don't don't be staying out too late the hard thing when you're a kiwi or an aussie you're coming from the other side of the world and you're, you're battling jet lag and and our body clocks are the opposite to the europeans so when you get to 9 p.m it's kind of nine in the morning back home and so your body clocks on the up and and so now, I would say, so uh, key MIPCOM is try and get a, some exercise in, a walk in the mornings, because usually you're up early if you come from our side of the world, so you're up already and you're making calls back home. I think the other thing that I'd suggest is really take the time, I think, in social settings to you know meet everyone, um, and you just kind of never know where, where that leads to. I mean, some of the most meaningful relationships that I've taken out of MIP have happened on the plane ride in or the train out and things like that, and just always been open to those kind of opportunities. I, I always tell this story. There's a lot of first-time Kiwi producers uh, coming to MIPCOM this year, and I was talking to some of them and I said to them that I remember my very first MIPCOM, I went to half a dozen pitches by lunchtime and I went back to my room because I was so overwhelmed by the whole experience that I just shut the curtains, put my head in my hands and thought, oh man, I'm so shit. And then um, then after a while, it, it probably took me a couple of MIPCOMs to get my head around the whole thing. And then then suddenly you think, actually, my ideas are just as good as everybody else's. Um, and, and then you start developing relationships. And then, you know, to the point now, you're just uh, really confident. You know, and I've I've been, geez, I'd be up in the teens, so I'd be 15, 16 times to just MIPCOM alone now. And so, you know, it's it's all really familiar. And, you know, you see people and they might change roles, but you just got to actually get that, you know, you've got to put yourself in the fire, particularly when you come from New Zealand, mate. So looking kind of further further ahead over the next three years, what genres, because Bungo is quite known for its unscripted, but I think you, you do do a bit of scripted. Yeah, look, we'll, we'll, we'll remain definitely unscripted. Um, scripted for me is just hard. Well, there's a strike on at the moment as well, and a lot of Kiwis that you'd like to work with are involved either with the SAG or 
with the writers. So uh, I just find for me, unscripted is kind of the mojo. I've always been a big fan of nonfiction. Um, I've always read nonfiction books. Um, so look, we'll remain in unscripted. Um, and, you know, there's still life in the format market. And to your earlier point, look, the biggie for us is uh, create those relationships, c- collaborate, uh, and then commercialize. And that is, we have a, a pretty healthy rights retention um, model in New Zealand where the producer does still get a pretty healthy share of the back end exploitation of rights. So so that'll continue, I think. So it's not necessarily about kind of growing the company per se in terms of number of people, offices. It's more relation, well, you know, partnerships and relationships. To be honest, business is booming for us. Like we've had our biggest year and we we had year on year growth through COVID. And what was what I saw was is that we had a lot of opportunities that paid off where those seeds were planted prior to COVID. And then as the world kind of locked down, people reached out and it was those relationships that were key because they'd already had a standing relationship with us and you weren't kind of... And then New Zealand kind of, as you know, kind of came online for a period before the rest of the world. So we were able to kind of get things back into production sooner. We did then go through another lockdown, but it did give us a really good competitive advantage. So no, growth is still on the cards. Um, I still think there's massive opportunities and you know, in the global markets. So look, we'll, we'll continue on that path. We'll remain in uh, documentary. We'll remain in reality. Uh, for us, we're not a kind of genre specific like um, supernatural and that. We we do a lot of we'll do a lot of lifestyle still, which is really evergreen and things like that. So, how are you tapping into or kind of responding to the fact that reality, you know, is is maybe the genre most people are consuming, even if they don't really know it now on social media. You know, you've got platforms like OnlyFans now doing their own reality TV shows, online personalities, you know, influencers kind of becoming their own brands and almost their own broadcasters, you know, without the need of TV. Are you tapping into that or kind of responding to it? Yeah, yeah. Look, I I think you're right in terms of reality and it changing to much shorter form. What people didn't realise is that actually people in the reality space can just go direct to their own audiences now. And actually, if, if you think about social media and in itself is that's reality. And uh, I think a lot of markets have been slow to adjust to that and recognize that. You know, our, our mission is to tell stories with heart and, and actually things that matter to us. So to kind of find that sweet spot in the reality space that marries up to those is always hard, but yeah. And how about AI? How do you think that will have changed things over the next three years? Are you using it to develop formats? We have a pretty significant stream of AI work going on at the moment that is led by uh, kind of our head of operations at my company who is massive on it and kind of the impact that it could have on us. So we definitely kind of want to be uh, at the forefront of that. And look, the re- reality is for us is that if you are not in the if you are in the content game and you do not have an AI strategy, then you know you will, I think, um, you know, be poorer for it in the next few years. Bailey Mackey speaking with Nico Franks. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more interviews from MIPCOM by tuning into our C21 FM internet radio station from Monday. 
The podcast will be back next Friday with a full roundup from the event. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. Listener.